Well, last week, very quickly, you remember we talked about two primary motives of the church and of every believer. Uh, remember what those were? They started with W. Yep, worship and witness. That's right. Those are the two um, fundamental aspects that all called out people of God ought to be doing. If you worship in a true spirit of worship, witness becomes something that should be evident in your life and ultimately should be evident even in your words when opportunities arise. Uh, and it's kind of a self-feeding loop here, the way that it works. And as I witness and proclaim the gospel, uh, it should drive me to continue to worship God, for He's the one who does all the work of salvation. So we looked at that aspect of it last week. This week, I want to talk about the, con- the content and the context of evangelism. Two very, very important uh, topics here. Uh, the core idea of the gospel, and I think one of the reasons I think a lot of people maybe have a hard time with the gospel is because I think we kind of have a general idea of the story of what Jesus did, but to really condense it into what is the core aspect of the gospel. I mean, what is this thing that I'm wanting to communicate to somebody? Uh, it's simply this. It is the idea of reconciliation between man and God. Now, what does it mean what does to reconcile mean? You guys heard that word? Some of you, if you get a, Tim, hypothetically, if you guys get in a spat, I know that never happens in your, in your marriage, but let's say hypothetically you have your first fight in 13 years, um, and you guys now want to be reconciled. What does that mean? You get it straight with each other. Work it out. Yeah, so that means you are back in relationship with, right? Uh, have you guys ever felt unreconciled with somebody? What's that feel like? Yeah, disconnected, discontent, um, and you feel this, this burden, right? Whenever you see that person or whatever, that you, you feel a burden of either, of either killing them or desiring re- reconciliation, right? One or the other. All reconciliation means is that there was a necessity for man to be made right with God again. So that, uh, like it was spoken of Abraham, that Abraham was a friend of God that there is a, a bringing back into relationship. A great passage for this, if you have your Bibles, is Romans 5.1. Let me show you this verse here. Um, a lot of you guys probably know passages here and there. Some of the ones I'm sharing with you this morning, I think, are core passages and just being able to uh, memorize and just understand as you're talking with somebody. Romans 5.1, Paul says, uh, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what reconciliation does. We have what? Peace with God. And it's through one thing. It is through having been justified. Now, this term is a very crucial term in understanding what this idea of reconciliation means. Okay? What does to be justified mean? To be justified. We hear that word a lot. You know, you're trying to just when someone tries to justify themselves, right? You guys, teenagers, ever hear them try to do that? Okay, there's a reason. Not just there's a reason. Yeah, there is the reason, right? It is the right reason, right? That's what it means to be justified. So I come home late. Well, I, I couldn't find my cell phone, and so and so did this, and right. 
and now I'm giving you a good reason. So what I'm trying to do is, I'm trying to declare myself right, right or righteous. Okay? And what we get is, to be justified isn't something you declare yourself to be before God, but what? It's something that God declares of you. Right, Calvin? God declares you justified. He declares you righteous. See? That's biblical justification. So it literally means to be declared righteous. It's, it's a legal term if you were in a court of law and all of this evidence seems to be mounting against you and the judge and the jury listen to all of the evidence and they look and they pronounce you not guilty. You have just been declared what? Just You are righteous. You are right. See? And now you are legally free from all accusation. Okay? Whatever you think about O.J. in the first trial, alright, it doesn't matter. Because he has been what? He has been declared right in his case that he didn't do what he did. It's over. Alright? It doesn't matter what human opinion thinks because the legal courts have spoken, at least back then. Alright? So, that's what it means. It does not mean this. And I'll hear this a lot of times. Um, Being justified before God does not mean just as if you've never sinned. Okay? People say that a lot. To be justified is just as if I've never sinned. That's not true. It means you have sinned. um, Great offenses against God. And because of what God has done, He has now declared you righteous because of Christ. Not because of anything in yourself. So it's not just as if you've never sinned. It is because you have sinned. I remember one of my professors at Dallas Seminary about popped an artery when he was talking about this idea that it just drives him bonkers when he hears people talking about you know, being declared righteous means just as if I've never sinned. And it means nothing of the sort. It means you have sinned and have desperately needed somebody to declare you righteous on the basis of somebody else's righteousness. See? So, that's the idea there. It is this idea of reconciliation. So, when I'm talking to somebody about the gospel, whatever I'm doing, my main focus with them is this. Somehow, I've got to show them that they and God are not at peace. See? And that God has done something to reconcile that relationship. See, that's the gospel. Which, by the way, is why is that called good news? Because who did the work? John, who did the work? He does it all. What you're, The only thing you did is what? Yeah, well, before that, sin. Right? They asked D.L. Moody, what was your role in, in salvation? He said, sin. And I did that real well. See? And God provided everything else. He provided the means, the instrument. He did it all. See, and now by faith, you know, now I receive that gift. Um, of salvation, but it's this idea of reconciling, making peace with God. Now look at Second Corinthians chapter five. Go to your right. I'll show you another one here. Chapter five, eighteen to twenty. This is why we're here this morning in this class. Verse seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to Himself. See? Who does all the work? God does all of the work to Himself 
in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. So, did you sin? Oh, did we sin. It's not as if I've never sinned. It's that He does not count our sins against us. See that? And He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. What's that called? He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Witness. It's called evangelism. It's called proclaiming what He's done for us. See, it's witnessing. Verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. What's an ambassador do? From one nation to another. What's an ambassador? What's that? Represent the party Yeah, they represent the position of another party, right? If I'm the ambassador from the United States to Russia, then I go there and I represent what it is that my head, my president, wants me to communicate to them. I'm just simply a representative. So, for an ambassador of Christ, what's our responsibility? Represent Christ. You see, and we live and we communicate what it is that he calls us to do. And he says, we therefore are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Isn't that interesting? So, God works how? Through us. As though God were making his appeal through me. How's that for a humble, a humbling thought? That God gets to work through me. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's it. See, that's the core of this idea of reconciliation, or being uh, of the core idea of the gospel. So it is about being declared righteous, and it is a judicial peace. We have peace with God. Okay, you guys know what I mean when I say a judicial peace? That means that there is a legal guilt before, uh, against us before God. It is a legal, moral guilt. So when we stand before God and He declares us righteous, that means, legally speaking, there is a judicial peace. I am at peace with the judge. See, so I can stand at the bar of judgment and I am at peace with Him. So, that's, that is the core essence of the Gospel. Okay, is that helpful a little bit? Just to make sense of it in that way? Uh, I think that should help. It helps me a lot because... I remember when I used to try to share the gospel, I would tell the whole story. You know, 2,000 years ago, God sent Jesus and He was born in a manger and, and Jesus came and He lived this perfect life because I couldn't live this perfect life and then He died and He was crucified after He was crucified. And I would just go through this whole story about what Jesus... And I would tell the story, which is fine, but I, I missed along the way the core aspect of this. That all of that that happened was about one thing. I mean, Jesus didn't have to be born in a manger, did He? No, he could have been born anywhere. Um, did he have to die on a cross? Well, I'm sure God could have taken his life any way that he wanted. It just happened to be that God chose the instrument of crucifixion in that day. Uh, a variety of things could have been done differently. But the core of it is what? That however God did it, what was the thrust of it? Reconciliation between God and man. Okay, that is the core of it. So, I gave you, uh, I'm getting pretty good at this, three S's today. All right, three S's here. Uh, essentially, when I'm talking to somebody about the gospel, these are the three things I personally want to communicate. Now, there is all kind, there's the way of the master, there's evangelism explosion, there's the four spiritual laws, there's the bridge. You know, I thought we could do a whole session and just walk through all of those, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to overwhelm you. Because I want the gospel to be something that you guys personally um, integrate within your own life and learn to communicate it in the way that's best for you without sacrificing some core features of it, okay? So, number one, 
when I'm talking to somebody, I want to make sure that they understand that one of the aspects of the gospel is that there is a separation between God and man. Okay? That's why sometimes... Have you guys ever seen the bridge illustration? Have you ever heard of that? The bridge illustration, it goes like this. You have this down here. Okay? You have this chasm that's, that's it's not crossable by man. It's, it's the... Uh, uh, what's that big hole in Nevada? Uh, Grand the Grand Canyon. Okay? It's the Grand Canyon, all right? Now, I could run and leap the Grand Canyon, and I might get about 9 or 10 feet, okay? Not bad. Bob might do it and maybe get 4 feet, all right? Um, Carl Lewis may do it and get about 19 or 20 feet. The top guy in the world might get 22 feet, but what's the problem with all of us? The result is the same, right? So, I don't care how good a person is in life, the bottom line is, I may jump a little bit further, but the problem is what? It's the distance I've got to cross. See, and the distance is one of infinity. Because the offense between man, okay, and God is, that's pretty good, is an infinite distance. Because the offense of man against God is to what degree? of an infinite degree, right? Therefore, some, some kind of a bridge has to be made. Ah, see that? It's great to do this on a napkin at Starbucks sometime. A bridge has to be done that God provides for man to now be able to be reconciled with God. See, that's the idea of the bridge illustration. But what you do is you illustrate that there's a separation between man and God. All right? and that's the, one of the main things that you really want to be able to communicate. And I showed you Romans 3. Look at Romans 3 real quick, just to kind of hammer this down a little bit. And what you try to show is you try to show the inability of man to please God. Now, that's a tough thing to do today, because why? What does modern man think about himself today? It's pretty good. Why do we think we're pretty good today? Which is ironic, of course, because there's more chaos and destruction in the world today than ever before. But why is it that man thinks he's pretty good today? What's that? Yeah, I'm pretty good. I think I'm better than you. So, you know, as long as the standard's below me, I'm okay. And it usually is below me, isn't it? Uh, why else does man think he's all right? He's pretty good. Yeah, that's exactly right. We have more autonomy and we have more self-sufficiency today than we ever have before. We're no longer bound by nature and, and all of these things. That Now we have an ability to have dominion over those things. And so man feels pretty good. See? So what, you, what we have to try to uh, communicate is Romans 3. Verse 9. What should we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Jew and Gentile alike. There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice evil. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark the ways. In the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, 20, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Why will no one ever be declared righteous through observing the law? What's the problem? What's that? Always fall short of the law. See, and does the law even have the ability to get you to God? Even if you followed the law, would the law have the ability to cross the chasm? No, because it's not merely about following the law. Because I could follow the law and still fall way short of a holy and infinite God. See, so all the law does is show me what? What's it show me? Yeah, what is sin? What my sin is? If all of a sudden I looked at all of you and I said, freeze! And all of you now tried to freeze and not move, all you're thinking about now is what? Moving. See? The law exposes the sin, right? The violation of the commandment. Of man, I sure want to move. Man, I want to scratch. I'm itching. See? When God says, thou shalt not, it exposes to you, but I want you so badly. Right? Thou shalt not covet. Really? That sure is a nice looking car my neighbor just pulled up in. That's good. That's some good looking shoes she just bought. I wonder where she got those shoes. Right? And you just start realizing, man, I can't do the law. See, the law points me to my sin. It doesn't give me the ability to cross the chasm. So, when I'm talking to somebody, that's what I'm trying to, uh, to point out. In fact, last night, a uh, great... Great example. I was at Starbucks, and um, in walk-in, four people. One was a TA of a philosophy course that I took, and three students who are all in the class. They're all about to go into doctoral work in philosophy now. And I knew the students weren't Christians at all. Um, and the TA, I had no idea, but he was into what's called phenomenology, which is kind of a, an, um, a very abstract kind of an existential form of philosophy. And so anyway, they see me, and they remembered me from six years ago. And so I go over there and I start talking to them when we start talking about spiritual things. Um, and, and the point of it was, I actually got the TA off to the side. He got really, really sick a couple of years ago and had to step out of teaching for a little while. And, and I began to just ask him questions about Christ and about um, and all of your studies that you've done. I mean, where are you with Christ? Uh, do you feel, and I asked him, do you feel like this is something that you found or was it something that God provided and, uh, and he was very, he, he's a believer. I was so happy to hear that, that he was a believer. Um, so that's what I try to do. That's what we try to do, is to try to show our inability to please God on our own. So you go from this idea of separation, and now you go to this idea of substitution. Okay? That is really the, the fundamental difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. It's the idea of substitutionary, what's the next word? What's that fancy word? Atonement, that's right. Substitutionary atonement. This is the fundamental difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world does not have what? A substitute on your behalf. Who's responsible for their own salvation before God? You. See, you're responsible for carrying your own weight and doing with it whatever you can do in order to atone 
all right, or to make or to make cover for your sins. And some will come up like the Muslim, and they'll come up with a nice little kind of scale system that you get to weigh everything on both sides, and if the scales tip one way or the other, that shows your righteousness or unrighteousness. You know, others become much more abstract, like the karmic systems of debt. You know, that I do good karma and bad karma, and somehow it all fits into the cosmic judicial system, and at the very end, I'll, I'll find out what happens by what form of life I come back in. It's, but it's all about you, see, and what you get to do. Um, you know, one of my favorite analogies that I like to use, particularly with guys, but I'll do it at the gym a lot, is, uh, some of you may have heard me use it, is the, the bench press illustration. Have you guys ever heard that one? Um, I'll, when I'm in the gym, I'll ask somebody, um, hey, how much can you put up on the bench press? You know, and whatever they say, let's say they say 250 pounds, and I'll say, wow. I said, what if we put 350 pounds on the bench press? I said, uh, you know, I'll say, what would happen? And they'll say, I'll get, I'll get pinned. That's right. I said, so uh, what if I showed you a book of perfect bench press form? Would that help you? No. I said, what if I just started screaming at you? Would that help you? He goes, no. I said, what if I told you the weight wasn't really there, that you just had to become one with the barbell? I said, you know, I'll say, does, does that help you any? No. What do you need? And they'll, they'll inevitably say, I need you to take the weight off. And I'll tell them that's the difference. See, every other religion gives you books of perfect form. They tell you the weight's not really there, that you've you got to become one with the barbell, or they just scream at you. Christianity is the only religion that did what? That had someone come and take the weight off of you. See? That's the difference. It is a substitutionary atonement. Somebody else does the work. And that's the key. So, here's the good news. You ready? The good news is, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He became sin. So, He receives our sin and our unrighteousness. And what do we get? We receive His righteousness. What a deal. He became sin that we might attain the righteousness of God. It's been called the great exchange. How's that for an exchange? He gets all of your junk, all of my sin, all of my thoughts, all of my deeds. He gets to take them all upon himself. And in one act of righteousness on his part, I get all of that. And I get clothed in his righteousness. Man, what a deal. See, that's the idea of substitution. Now, why don't people like this idea of substitution, by the way? Calvin, what do you think? Why, why don't people like this idea of substitution? What do you think? I don't like this idea that somebody else did it for me. Yeah, number one, wait a minute. Yeah, I can do this. Yeah, it's an offense against me. See? Why else do you think people don't like this idea? You ever heard somebody say this? Are you telling me that all I have to do is believe in Jesus Christ and I'll be saved? And then what? Yeah, and then I can keep on sinning and I'm saved? And then they'll give you those three words. That's too easy. You ever heard that? That's too easy. You're out of your mind. You're crazy. See, and, you, and when they say that, if they don't say that, you haven't shared the gospel good enough yet. Okay, they have to say that. Okay, that's crazy. That's too easy. Only when they finally see that do you go, 
You got it. See, you got it. Now, it's not that you will purposefully and by intent continue in sin, but you will now um, stumble in his steps, you see, and follow his path. But that's the point. There's a substitution that's been done. And finally, now, we get to the third S. And that is that now, because of the substitution, salvation is now offered to all men. Uh, a lot of you know the passage in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not of your works, that what? That no one should boast. Why should no one boast? Huh? They didn't do anything. And what they did do caused the problem. See? So it's no one can boast before God. Um, you know, that, that's why, you know, one of the, and I'm going to touch on this a little bit. On, well, I'm not going to touch on this because I'm going to do that Wednesday night. Um, it's through faith alone. That's all it is. And it's now expressed in language. Okay? If it's through faith alone, it will express itself in language. Look at Romans chapter 10. Okay, Romans 10. Paul says now, in, chapter, in verse 9 of chapter 10, he says, So that now, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, see, you can't differentiate the two, can you? Are there a lot of people who confess with their mouth but don't believe in their heart? You bet. And you uh, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. Isn't that good? Not with your mouth. A lot of people think it's with your mouth that you're justified. It's not with your mouth. It is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Interesting. So what is it that makes, that, that, uh, makes me righteous before God? My heart. See, it's with my heart that I'm justified. I'm declared righteous when my heart has been regenerated and now I am right with God. And as a result of that, what, ha what now happens? It goes from my heart and it comes forth from my lips. See? And now I confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right? And I do that. I did that in 1987. And I confessed Him with my mouth. And I've been doing it ever since. Uh, just letting people know that this is, my, this, is, this is who I follow. See? So, those are the three simple S's of the gospel. Alright? Now, the, 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 the bigger question now, not the bigger question, the other question now is, how do I do this? I mean, how do I do this with my brother, my sister, my neighbor, my whoever, the stranger, how do I do this? And so I want to talk just for six and a half minutes um, about the contextualization of the gospel. Is that clock right, by the way? I don't want to... That says 10... It is? Or 9.32? I need to move that back. It still says 10. What is it? 9.35. Okay. Contextualization of the gospel. Basically, two E's made it real simple. I think this is kind of the key to the context. Number one. I think entering the world of the unbeliever is absolutely crucial to sharing the gospel. In other words, this idea of separation, substitution, salvation, that's the content. 
But that's going to look different depending on the world of the person that I'm talking to. You guys know what I mean by that? Entering their world. All right. So I need to discern the undercurrent of their need, i.e., what drives them, what do they long for, what pains them, uh, what are the significant features of their life that has formed them. Y'all with me? Okay. And then I take these things and I now, through discernment, try to integrate the gospel into their life. And it's going to be a tailor-made gospel for these. It's not a canned approach. And then, what's that? It is marketing in a sense, yeah. Biblical marketing. And you don't get paid for it. That's right. And then, you explain Christ. Once you've kind of felt like you have... By the way, to enter the world of the unbeliever, what does that require? What does that require? Huh? No, yeah, what does that require? To know something about them. Huh? Yeah. Having a relationship. Talking to them. Asking lots of questions. See? I know too many people who their gospel presentation is 90% them, 10% them. Do you believe that? You know, and they just, they just have 10% feedback from the other person. It's 90% just like a fire hydrant that comes out. But to enter their world, you've got to be able to know about them. Spend time with them. You know, you may not even share the gospel for a month, two months, three months. It all depends on the individual. Building the relationship. Um, I mean, I just now, I've been going to, and I always joke about it, but I, was, I go to these Starbucks all around. I don't go there just because they have great tall two-pump cinnamon no-wet mochas, all right, <laughs> which they do. Uh, I go because the more they see me, the more they see me as a safe person, right? They see me as somebody that's friendly, smiling, always asking about them, asking about their schooling, what are they studying, where are you headed, what are you going to do? I mean, I know something just about everybody at the four Starbucks that I go to. I'm just always trying to be this fun easygoing, caring person that loves all of them, see? And they always see me sitting down with my Bible open or a book on theology or something, and they always see that. And early on, it was like, you know, uh, you know a stake to, a, to, to Dracula. You know, they couldn't even look at it. Hey, dude, what's up? You know? They wouldn't even look at the Bible. They couldn't look at it, you know? Now it's like, hey, dude, what's up, man? You know, what you... Reading the Word again, huh? Yeah, reading the Word. You read the Word? No, no. You know, and now you kind of get into this dialogue. And I've got a dialogue with many of them now, which is fun, because I've kind of entered their world a little bit. And one's about to become a Republican. <laughs> Let me give you some examples of what this looks like, okay? Uh, Mark 2.5, very fast. Je- uh, this is where Jesus um, heals the paralytic. Before he heals him, do you remember what he says to him? Your sins are forgiven. The people, remember, they're in in shock. What? Who is this man that claims to forgive sins? For only what? Or who? God can forgive sins. But in that day, the guy was believed to be a paralytic because of what? Because of his sin. And the guy goes and he says, Hey brother, before before I heal you, your sins are forgiven. And he enters his world and he lifts this weight that that culture put on him. And the guy is shocked and he says, now take up your pallet and walk. See, and he jumps up, clicks his heels in the middle of the air and he runs out. See, and Jesus enters. He could have just healed him, but he wanted to enter into his world and say, man, I know what people have told you all of your life. 
and it's not true. What does he do to the leper? He could have looked at the leper and said, the leper be cleansed, but what does he do instead? What does he do? Remember, filled with compassion, the Lord what? Touches the leper. Why did he touch him? How is he trying to enter his world? What did the leper not ever experience? Touch, because why? Yeah, they thought they would get it, and that was the most unclean disease you could have. But Jesus touches him and enters his world and heals his heart and then heals his body. Isn't that good? Um, Or you've got uh, the storm. Jesus walks on the water during the storm. And the disciples are rowing through this thing and they're not getting anywhere. And Jesus, it says, was walking past them. Isn't that funny? He's walking faster than they're rowing. And uh, and he calms the storm. He enters the storm with them. Uh, John 4, the woman at the well. Jesus looks at this woman, sees where she's at. How many husbands has she had? Five. How about the guy she's living with? Not her husband. That's six guys. And Jesus goes, huh, you're at the well getting water every day to drink. Huh, I wonder how that's like your life. Oh, it's just like your life. Because you keep going to another man, to another man, to another man, to another man, just like you go every day to get water because the water you drink never satisfies you. So guess what? If you drink of the water that I give you, what? You'll never thirst again. Wow. Isn't that good? Just enters her world of where she is. Same with the woman caught in adultery. Remember that? They came, they threw her on the ground, they surround her, and they ask Jesus, what should we do with her? Stone her? Right? Remember what it says Jesus does? And Jesus stoops down to the woman. Isn't that great? I love that. He stoops down. And what does He do? He gets on her level. He looks up at all of them in judgment of her. And He is on her level with her. And He says, Let he who has not sinned cast the first stone. Woman, where are your accusers now? They have gone. Neither do I accuse you. Isn't that good? And He was just the master of entering the world of people. And that, to me, is the key for effective evangelism. It's taking the content of the gospel and learning the context of how to integrate this into the world of people. Yeah, well, you remember Jesus that had the ability to know the heart much quicker than we do. I mean, what Jesus could know in two seconds, it usually will take us maybe two weeks or two months. No, I think there are times that you just share the gospel and you go and you just trust that the seeds have been planted. I mean, Paul says, some plant, some water, right? The Lord causes the growth. So sometimes you go and you just plant. I don't really have time to cultivate the soil because of the nature of the relationships. So yeah, there's going to be times. But I think for the majority of us, we have all of these relationships already built that we haven't really utilized those relationships the way that we could. And so I'm talking more right now. Let's take what we have developed, where we have earned the right with some people, and now let's try to enter their world and integrate this gospel. But certainly there's times that just sharing the gospel with somebody is, is adequate and the Lord blesses it.